Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Chip Up Podcast. My name is Chris, I am your host and today we're going to get straight into our discussion of last week's events in professional golf. We're going to skip all the details that we're going to go to at the end. We're going to get straight into the discussion because of the exciting finishes on Sunday on the PGA and European Tour. Now normally my method of deciding what to talk about first on the podcast is I look at which is the biggest issue the biggest tournament to talk about in golf of the past week. But this week, I was going to talk about the Irish Open first on the podcast. But after what happened at the 3M Open in Minnesota at TPC Twin Cities, I have to start with that. And Matthew Wolf won on minus 21, beating Colin Morikawa and Bryson DeChambeau by a single shot after eagling the 18th hole at TPC Twin Cities, his 72nd hole for a 65 to win by one. It was a truly brilliant event. It was just something very, very special about this tournament. It's the inaugural tournament of the 3M Open, the first tournament we've had in a while in Minnesota. The field for the tournament wasn't necessarily the greatest field in the world. It did have world number one Brooks Kepka, and it obviously had Bryson DeChambeau, who was world number eight, competing for the title. But it wasn't the strongest field in the world. It wasn't the biggest hyped up, most sort of prestigious tournament in the world. But the Sunday finish brought... Possibly one of the most exciting finishes on the PJ Tour in recent memory. There's not been a, a playoff in the PJ Tour for 19 events or something now. And obviously that streak continued this week. But it was one of the tightest events of that period. Because a lot of those wins have been by six or seven shots. I mean, just last week, Nate Lashley won by six shots. So, you know, we've been seeing dominant wins. But this week was truly, truly special. And it really got going on the back nine on Sunday. The three... Uh, players who I mentioned just now, Matthew Wolf, Morikawa and Bryson DeChambeau, were all tied for the lead going into the final round. They were all sitting on 15 under par and they were all tied for the lead. DeChambeau and Wolf both got off to a very good start. They were uh, 17 under, I think, 2 under for their round after a few holes, about 6 holes. But Morikawa was 13 under. He dropped 2 shots and was 2 over par after, uh, I think, 6 holes it was. On the 7th hole, DeChambeau, playing the group ahead of Morikawa and Wolf had a horrible little duff chip shot. Well, meek, weaker mental players would have crumbled after that because it was a really uh, nasty little shot where he duffed it about three inches in front of him, dropped a shot. Wolf also dropped a shot on the uh, on the ninth hole and going into the back nine, neither of those three were in the lead. It was Wyndham Clark who somehow was leading despite having dropped his club and one, one hole even thrown it about 10 yards after hitting just extremely errant drives. And, you know, pretty poor behaviour from him, I must say. The way he threw his club almost went into the, the, the stand, uh, into the fans after he threw it. But he had pretty poor drives around the turn and really horrible shots. But he only dropped one shot on his whole round. And he, he actually kept progressing forward at that stretch. His golf obviously wasn't good enough from his Tita Green game to keep him going and keep him into contention the whole way around. But for him to be in the lead at that point was simply astonishing. But he didn't necessarily fall away at the end. It was more a case of Morikawa, Wolf, and DeChambeau pushing ahead. And Morikawa got by himself back into contention with three straight birdies from the 11th hole. Going on to the 13th and heading on to the 14th tee, all three players were tied at 17 under par. Wolf then made back-to-back birdies on 14 and 15 after a poor drive at 14 when he got away with, but he made the most of it. To take the lead by one shot over Morikawa who birdied 15 and then birdied 16 
to tie Wolf again at the top. DeChambeau in the group ahead also birdied 16. And then the telling moment and pretty much the iconic moments started to really unfold when Bryson DeChambeau was in the 18th fairway and Morikawa and Wolf were putting for birdie on the par 3 17. 202 yards away from the pin on the par 5 18th, Bryson took a 6 iron and hit a glorious high drawing hook almost from way right, from right side of the green on this long sort of parallel green to the to him, with a big swooping hook over water, landing about mm, seven or eight feet from the hole, releasing a couple of feet, five feet for eagle, right to left, simple little putt, just a gorgeous shot. Big fist pumps from DeChambeau, giving it a bit of the fist pump, and everybody heard that roar back on the 17th green. Meanwhile, while DeChambeau is pretty much hitting this shot, Morikawa hit his putt on 17 and had a brutal lip out. An absolutely horrible lip out that went pretty much 360. It came, well not 360, about 118. Just a quick side note on that. People say, oh, it's a 360 lip out when it comes back at you. But in reality, a 360 lip out is when it, it comes back out the way it was going after going around the whole hole. So it's probably the most lip out you'll ever see is a 180 lip out. This is a bit of a misconception. I don't know why I'm bringing that up even. But it wasn't a 180 lip out. It was probably like a 110 degree lip out, shall we say, if we're being really precise, which is still absolutely brutal lip out. It was going at such good pace. I thought he had it all the way. It looked good all the way. And he just made back-to-back birdies. And then at the very end, it seemed to almost die to the right when it was breaking right to left the whole way. And so unlucky. Wolf then had a putt to take the lead and he left it just short. They hit their tee shots on 18, both find the fairway and then they watch as DeChambeau rolls in his putt after a bit of a faffing about from Wyndham Clark. Long wait for DeChambeau, but he stepped up and hold it. Huge fist pumps. He thought he'd done enough at least to make a playoff. It seemed like he'd done enough. He felt like he'd done enough to win the tournament even, which was a bit ambitious. But he, he felt he'd done enough at least to get himself in a playoff. But little did he know that Matthew Wolf had something very special in store. He hit his approach shot first. He went three with five iron on this like 560 yard par five, which is just outrageous. He hit the ball to about 30 feet pin high left off the green on a little down slope with a bit of fringe grass to play with. It was a bit of an awkward one. Marikawa hit his uh, approach shot perfectly after a great drive and hit it to about 15, 20 feet just beyond the pin. And it looked like Morikawa had the best chance to take the title by the scruff of the neck. But then up stepped Wolf. And I don't know, I just had a feeling that he was actually going to hold it. I was thinking to myself, you know, Morikawa has the better look at Birdie. Uh, excuse me, Morikawa has the better look at Eagle. But I just have a feeling that I knew, I had a feeling that definitely one of them would hold it. I knew that Bryson wasn't going to win that tournament. But the, the fact that he pushed them to their limits, pushed these two young guns to their limits... Wolf is 20 years old and Marikawa is 22 years old. They're so young. I mean, DeChambeau is only 25 years old himself, but he's a bit of a, uh, a veteran compared to these guys. And Wolf stepped up, hit a beautiful putt, perfect pace. Nick Fowler was saying, get down, get down. But in actuality, it was pretty much perfect deadweight pace. About, would have gone about three feet by maybe. Not deadweight, but, you know, very good putt from about 30 feet. And it was just in all the way. You felt like it was in all the way. Just a sensational moment. The crowd went into absolute delirium. The Minnesota fans were loving it and Wolf went crazy. It was something absolutely very, very special. 
Morikawa went up next, could not convert. And lo and behold, Wolf was there as the champion after an eagle. And he'd gone eagle on top of someone else's eagle. I mean, that's so, so rare. It's been about 20 years since something like that's happened. But that was one of those, the hype is real moments for Matthew Wolf, Because he has been hyped up. And I spoke in, in detail and in depth about Wolf and Morikawa and Wolf's teammate, Victor Hovland, last week's episode about amateur golf. And I spoke about how I was wondering who would be the better player out of Hovland and Wolf. It seemed like they both had immense potential, but what Wolf has shown this week was something that just doesn't come around, you know, all that often. You don't get players like this who can produce their best golf at the moment. He played his last six holes or five holes in four under par. Down the stretch in a PJ Tour tournament, you need to shoot 65 to win when you were tied for the lead anyway. I mean, does it get much better than that? I don't think it really does. And, you know, with this win, Wolf has made the second biggest leap in the history of the official World Golf Rankings. The second biggest leap in history, and in relative terms, the biggest leap in history, moving to 135 in the world. He moved up like 1,500 spots to 135th in the world already. And, you know, as if that wasn't impressive enough, Hovland and Morikawa also are now in the top 250 in the world. While Morikawa obviously finished second, Hovland finished like 13th for the second week in the row. And, you know, been left in a bit of the shadow here, but he's been producing the best golf the most consistently. He nearly finished top 10 at the US Open. He was low amateur at the Masters. And you think about these three amateurs and also Justin Sue, who's just turned professional, who's being left a bit in the dust despite only having played three or four professional tournaments. You know, he's not getting the same acclaim as these other guys because they're playing so well. But these three young guys, and I spoke about it, like I mentioned just previously, if you haven't listened, go check it out, last week's episode of the Chip Up podcast. I talked about how they're so ready, these guys, to compete on the PJ Tour. It's not even that much of a step up. Because, first of all, at least for Wolf and Hovland, they've competed with each other at Oklahoma State, as well as other players. And because they're both so extremely talented, and because they're playing consistent, regular, competitive golf, they're both in a position where the the step up is not that high. Considering that Morikawa was another player that they played against, Morikawa, Wolf, and Hovland were in the top 12 in this tournament. Only nine other PGA Tour pros were, you know, better than Victor Hovland. And, you know, no one was better than Wolf, and no PGA Tour pros were better than Morikawa. When you think of it like that, these guys are so good that if they're competing at college level, it's almost like preparing themselves to compete at the PGA Tour level. And given the performance we saw from these guys, I don't think we're gonna, they're going to be written off very soon. I think we're going to be seeing a lot. And I mean a lot of them. I would not be surprised to see one or two of these th- uh, three or four players that I've mentioned, Hovland, Sue, Warakar and Wolf, in contention next week at the John Deere Classic. And although Wolf stole the spotlight with his victory, Marikawa held himself so, so well. His swing is absolutely gorgeous and his ball flight even more so. I think it's the sexiest ball flight I've ever seen on Top Tracer because it's so consistent and it's such a smooth little leak. With a lot of other shots, if smooth draw doesn't necessarily always look so good, a big high draw that like DeChambeau played was pretty cool. But the smooth little leak that Morikawa has from left to right, it's so controlled. You know, the amount of fade he's getting on it is so minimal 
and so controlled, but it's still a fade. He's playing a fade every single shot. That control is just beautiful to me. And, you know, that's what I love to see in a ball flight. And he has pure control over his golf ball. He really did have pure control over his golf ball. And put that together with his putting stroke, which is like gold. Morikawa is, well, what can I say? He's a former world number one amateur and he is going to be a star. He's just earned special temporary status on the PJ Tour, which means he gets unlimited sponsors invites now. And he's nearly already at the threshold of gaining a PJ Tour card anyway, with a second place finish. If he can have a few more top 10s, he should get there. But even still, with all of these achievements, it's overshadowed by Wolf's brilliance. And I say that Marikawa is going to be a star, Hovland's going to be a star. That's pretty much, you know, guaranteed. But Wolf, I think it's guaranteed he's going to be a superstar. And when I say that, I mean he's got the swing, he's got the attitude, he's young, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's going to be the next poster boy for the PJ Tour, I wouldn't be surprised to see. And he'll never be a poster boy for perfection, like an Adam Scott or Rory McIlroy, who's just got a perfect swing. He's going to be a poster boy for, you can do it your own way out here and you can have success. The swing that I talked about in detail, you know, cultivated by George Gankis, obviously everyone will know it now. If I talk about it and you're listening, you'll, you'll, you'll have the image in your mind. It's one of those things where it seems like he's got such good control of his club face that when you think about it, there's actually very little that can go wrong with that swing. And, you know, you always say, oh, the kooky swings will never hold up under pressure. And that's not necessarily true. It's not the kooky swings that will hold up and not under, excuse me, it's not the kooky swings that will not hold up under pressure. It's the swings based on timing. It's the swings based on rhythm. And it's the swings founded in well, yeah, basically timing and rhythm. And ironically enough, that's what is considered beautiful. That's what's taught. Yet a guy like Luke Donald has the capacity to completely collapse in, you know, under pressure because his swing was built so much on timing. And obviously when he's in the zone, his rhythm, his timing is perfect, then he was just the best player in the world. But at the same time, if he loses that rhythm and he loses that timing in his swing, he can hit big hooks, he can hit push slices, everything can creep in, especially with a driver. But with Wolf, that is not necessarily a threat. And I say that because all he has to do is rotate. He gets the club at the position at the top, you know, he just does his back swing, and all he has to do is rotate. And I say all he has to do, it's a replant of the left heel and a pure rotation into the ground, like hard. But it's still just rotation. And he's used to that, you know, his little idiosyncrasies, his little twitches, his very idiosyncratic swing. The wolf twitched before the swing and then the, the replanting of the left heel, as I just mentioned. But he just proved that it can hold up under pressure doing what he just did, eagling the last hole to win. Anyway, just a special, special final round performance. A go down definitely in history is one of the better ones from the 2019 season and from recent memory. And for Wolf, the sky is the limit, to be honest. You know, I haven't even spoken about the Shambo, who is actually the world number six in the world now. But Marikawa and Wolf are so interesting in their youth, coming out. It's only Wolf's fourth start on the PJ Tour, and he's won. That's just obscene. You know, all the hype is real, and forgive me for speaking too much about them, but I just can't see them going away. And don't be surprised to see one of them in contention 
next week and see Matthew Wolf, especially in contention next week. And so having spoken now about the 3M Open, we're going to move over to Europe and talk about the Irish Open. And as I mentioned before, the Irish Open was the biggest tournament on this week. And if it wasn't for the fantastic finish by Wolf, we would have already spoken about the Irish Open on the show today. But hosted by Paul McGinley at Le Hinch Golf Club, once again, a fantastic event. Once again, a well-supported event. The Irish fans truly are as good as Scottish fans and English fans. Basically, just from United Kingdom and Ireland, the golf fans, and I, I know I'm a little bit biased, but they are the best in the world because they just are respectful, they're knowledgeable, they know what a good shot is, they won't clap you if you... If you chip it to eight feet from just off the green, they won't necessarily clap. If you chip it to eight feet from in a bunker just off the green in a plug light, it'll be rapturous applause. And that's the difference, which get, doesn't get on players' nerve. And that's huge for players because... Well, from my own experience, if you're playing with someone who says good shot when you're extremely disappointed with a shot or you know you should be getting it closer, it's pretty frustrating. So I can only imagine guys going, yeah, on the PGA Tour when you've hit it to like 30 feet with a wedge from 100 yards. But the Irish fans were just incredible. They're out in their droves. And it's more of a roar in the UK than a, a cheer. It's more of a roar when putts go in from fans and from players that are, you know, home players or favourite players. And I love hearing those sounds on, on a Sunday in the UK, basically, in the professional tournament in the UK. It's just great. And John Rahm ended up taking home the title, his second Irish Open in three years. He won at Port Stewart two years ago now. And he picked up this title too with a final round 62, eight under par which included two bogeys, including one on a drivable par four that he nearly drove. He had 10 threes in 11 holes from the sixth. 10 threes in 11 holes, and the only hole that wasn't a three was just the aforementioned drivable par four, where he made a five from just beside the green. He had an incredible long putt from uh, off the green where it was, he had to putt it up a bank, he held that on the second. He held a great eagle putt on the 12th. And then everything else other than that looked pretty easy. It was a pretty easy looking 62, which despite being two shots better than anybody else's score in the final round, seemed pretty easy for Ram and could have been much lower as well. Sensational performance from Ram. He kept going, kept going. And it looked like he had no chance at the start of the day because Rafa Cabrera Bayo, who was one shot off the lead, had a great start on the fourth day. He got to 15 under really quickly and Ram's finishing total was 16 under. So, you know, Cabrera Bayo could have continued with his round. He definitely would have won. But he really kind of collapsed. He had four bogeys in the space of six holes, I think it was, on the back nine. Threw it all away. And it turned out to be the pivotal 13th hole. That was actually the difference. Ram had just eagled to get to 14 under, which was one shot back of Cabrera Bayo at the time. But then bogey 13 and... Everyone was thinking, oh, you know, with the holes to come, Ram can't really get that back. He obviously bounced back brilliantly on 14 and 15 to make birdie, including an unbelievable shot on 15 from over 200 yards to just a couple of feet. But you still would have thought Cabrera Bale was in pole position at that time. And there were still a few other people hanging around at 13 and 14 under as well. But Cabrera Bale sort of lost his cool and made some bad bogeys, including a couple of absolute... Just flat duffs from Cabrera Bayo, 
his chipping continues to be the bane of his golfing existence. He is so smooth with the long game and his putting is like number one on the European Tour in putting now, which is just sensational. But his chipping is just, the technique is so poor. It's so rigid and technical. And I know I'm, you know, it might sound ridiculous that I'm calling a professional golfer's chipping technique poor, but I'll praise every other part of his game because it's just simply magnificent. But even, you know, someone like me can see how there's just something wrong. The backswing is so short and he keeps everything, he's trying to keep everything still and have perfect technique and just short. And then he sort of like tries to push it almost like Lee Westwood used to do when he wasn't chipping well. Short backswing and a really jerky transition in, in just trying to get some speed behind the ball. And, you know, that's just not the way you want to do it, off, especially off tight lies. You want smooth, smooth swings with a little bit of speed at the ball. But it has to be fluid. You know, all you got to do is just rock your shoulders. You don't want to be too technical. And, you know, on a downslope, on the 13th, I think it was, on a downslope, you know, with a bunker in your way, he's hitting a, just the wrong shot, trying to almost like bump and run it, it looked like, just carry it over the bunker and release it up there. He should be trying to slide that club under the ball. Uh, okay, maybe it was a sandy lie. Maybe it was a difficult lie. But professional golfer who's leading the Irish Open should not be duffing that chip in the bunker. That's the one place you can't go. I mean, he ended up getting up and down from the bunker anyway to salvage a bogey. But the confidence that that drains out of you, you know you can't get up and down. And when you know you can't get up and down if you're not in the bunker, it's difficult to fire at pins. You feel so defensive, but you feel helpless because you can't. You know, you just can't stop the bleeding. And that's what happened for Cabrera Bow. He fell way off and actually birdied the 18th to finish three shots behind Rahm in the end. Robert Rock, who shot a 60 on Saturday, nearly broke 60, had a putt for a 59 from 30 feet, holds some absolute tram liners on the way in. He wasn't able to capitalise either. Even though he managed to get to 14 under par, it looked like he was Rahm's closest challenger. He couldn't do it. And then all, all of a sudden, Ram, everyone fell away and Ram was left to stroll home to the title. And that was with sort of making a faff of 18 as well. He could have easily made a birdie there or an eagle and he made a faff of it. If a few other things went Ram's way today and he didn't make a, a few silly errors, he could have shot 59. And it looked like the 13th hole would be his downfall, but in the end, it was irrelevant. And it was more of the downfall of Cabrera Bayo. It was... The thing that kickstarted Ram for the last five holes. He got to where he wanted to be with that position to go. And then he just pushed it in from there. And it was just a stunning final round and a stunning victory. It seems like there's something in the water for Ram in Ireland. He just performs so well in the country. And he says he loves it as well. He says he even loves like the sort of the Harbour Bistro, I think it is, in near rural Port Rush, where he's been in Eton a load of times. He said he's going to go hang out there around for the rest of the week. But it makes for ominous viewing for Ram's competitors at the Open because Ireland is obviously his favourite country to play golf, it seems. And the Open is the one tournament he hasn't performed really well in at a major. Now would be the perfect time with the Open at Royal Portrush in Ireland. Now would be the time for Ram to perform. With this win, he goes to, I think, he'll probably go to third favourite behind Kepka and McElroy for the Open. And it's going to be tough to bet against him after that performance because he's just in great 
position for Lynx Golf. He likes to keep his drivers low. He can play the little cut fade. And he's got great putting on Lynx Greens. So, so watch out for Ram at Royal Port Rush, that's for sure. If you want to see an example of how, well, the pros in general, but especially John Rahm, make it look so, so easy, go find on YouTube John Rahm 62 Silverleaf Golf Club. It's a video from Brody, Brody Smith on YouTube, who is obviously not everyone's cup of tea. But they're just playing a casual round with the owner of Silverleaf Golf Club, John Rahm and Brody Smith. And obviously lucky Brody Smith playing 18 holes with John Rahm. But John Rahm goes out and shoots the 62. He shoots 10 under on this absurdly long golf course. And if you watch that video, you'll understand how he makes it look so easy. He just hits the ball a million miles and he hits it straight. So all of a sudden, he's turned that absurdly long golf course into almost a academy course with 14 par threes and four par fours from about anywhere between max 200 yards and mostly with around 100 yards though. So most of these holes are around 100 yards and the par fours are around 200 yards. That is of the academy course, shall we say, with rabbit ears. That's just demolishing everything. When you hit every single fairway like that, that just makes it so much easier. And, you know, again, it was the case at, at La Hinch where he's going in with like 160 yards left or something to back pins on 500-yard holes. And you're thinking, it's so easy once you do that. You can just hit your eight iron to the back, release it out a little bit. It won't be an 8-iron for John Rahm, it'll be in like a, almost a wedge 9-iron. And it makes it just so much, it makes golf so much easier when you can do that and when you can be in the fairway so far down there. And that video on YouTube is sensational. The owner of the golf course is also a very, very, very good player and he's just a great round. I won't spoil it, but go check that out on YouTube. It's a really fantastic video. A final word on the hinge before we sign off on the Irish Open. What a superb, superb golf course that looks. So many blind tee shots to start, which look really quirky, but the way the greens and uh, the mounds around each of the greens look frames the course so beautifully. It just looks like one of those courses that would go straight on the bucket list, one that you'd really want to play, one you wouldn't really want to miss if you were going around that kind of area in Ireland. Just a beautiful, beautiful golf course. And obviously the weather was perfect for the week. It looked like Harrington at the start of the week would be in there with a chance and it would have been great if Harrington or Lowry perhaps was up there. It would have made the tournament even better. But as it was, it was a fantastic tournament and deserved winner in John Rahm. Okay, just before we sign off, I'm going to take a really quick look at the Scottish Open, which is taking place at the Renaissance Club, a new venue for the European Tour. Now, there's been talk that the Irish Open and Royal Port Rush in particular how are quite similar in the sense of Lahinch gives you more of a feeling for Royal Port Rush than the Renaissance Club does. And traditionally speaking, the Scottish Open is the preparation for the Open for a, a number of players. And of course, the Scottish Open will always get a bigger field than the Irish Open. We get people like Justin Thomas, Matt Kuchar, uh Kevin Kisner, they're all coming over. Mackerel is playing in the Scottish Open. Big, big names all coming over to get ready for the Open, basically. Now, McElroy, it seems very interesting for McElroy not to play his home Irish Open, then play the Scottish Open, and then go back to Ireland for the Open. Wouldn't he want to play the Irish Open, have a week off perhaps at home, and then go spend some time at Portrush? Obviously, he's he doesn't want to think too much about Portrush, which is 
probably going to be one of the biggest goals of his entire career to win that tournament in two weeks' time. He doesn't want to get too much in his own head. That would be my thinking, I guess, for why he's playing at the Scottish Open and not being in Ireland at the time. Perhaps he'll get too much in his head. He'll put too much weight on it. Perhaps he, he's played Port Rush a million times. You know, he could just, you know, go fly there after the Scottish Open, which he probably wants to be contending in, and get there on Monday or Tuesday, take it nice and chill, see some family, and then try and get ready for the tournament on maybe the Tuesday Wednesday. But still not entirely sure that the preparation is perfect by going to Scottish Open. Now, for Macro, it's a little bit different because he already knows Portrush so well. But for players like Thomas, Kisner, Kucher, I'm surprised they didn't go and play the Irish Open, then maybe go have a week off, try and keep your game in shape, then go to Portrush maybe four or five, six days early, get to know the course, spend some time there, and then be ready for the Open. It's so difficult when you've never played a major championship golf course before and there's a bit of time before the major and what are you going to do? Are you going to get there early and will you feel as if your game is in shape or are you going to play the week before? And because the Scottish Open is a week before, it's going to draw a bigger crowd, I suppose. But yeah, the preparation doesn't seem perfect. So it'll be interesting to see just how similar the two golf courses are, the Renaissance Club versus La Hinge and the Renaissance Club versus Portrush. So, I, I mean, I can't wait. Don't get me wrong. The Scottish Open is going to be great. And the Open is going to be probably the best tournament we've seen on other than the Ryder Cup in forever. But I do I do have to wonder what the thinking is. I mean, I'm always wondering what the thinking is behind these decisions, whether to play in a major or not. Obviously, I wish I could relate to these things. But, you know, each player does what's best for them. As for the Scottish Open, though, well, my pick is McElroy. Why? Because he's won twice this year. He's got like 12 top 10s in 14 events. He's coming back to the European Tour for the first time in a while. It just makes sense that he would win. And wouldn't it be an incredible send-off to go to Portrush with a win? It would just put even more expectation on him. And with Rory, what do we know? We know that he manages to put the most amount of expectation he possibly can on his own shoulders through no fault of his own, just by winning at the appropriate time, shall we say. And then he'll sort of falter under those expectations. Hopefully that doesn't happen this time. Hopefully McElroy will be able to compete at Renaissance Club and then perhaps even take home the Claret Jug at his home course. But once again, only time will tell. But McElroy, Justin Thomas, they're looking good contenders for next week at the Scottish Open. All right, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard today, remember you can check us out on www.chipoutgolf.com. You can get in touch at chipoutgolf at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at chipoutgolf, on YouTube at chipoutgolf, and on facebook.com forward slash chipoutgolf. Thank you so much for listening once again, everybody. And we'll be back this time next week for another episode of the Chip Out Podcast. And perhaps even an open championship preview special so stay tuned for that one thank you so much everybody see you next week 